0: Take your Bibles and open them this morning to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 as we finish this chapter this morning and draw very quickly to the end of the letter. Now some of you may not know who he is and some of you may have known who he was. Um, Nonetheless, a very gifted theologian, J.I. Packer, passed away this week. Went home to be with the Lord. uh, Influenced many, many brothers and sisters, countless uh, individuals. um, Influenced generations of people to know God, to see God's holiness, to love God, to serve God. One of his quotes, he was asked how to define a Christian. And one of his quotes was, I simply define a Christian as one who has God as his father. That's a great quote. It's simple, concise, profound. One who has God as his father. There are other ways we can define what it means to be a Christian. But certainly one of the fruits we see in Christianity for the Christian life is a person who does bring and who strives to bring everything in their lives under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's no small feat. That's actually a major ordeal. To bring our decisions, our careers, our hobbies, our pleasures, our thoughts, our actions, to bring all of that under the governing headship of Jesus, well, that's, that's a supernatural work, isn't it? It requires the intervention of God. God. Because we're sinners. And the most simple definition of a sinner is one who rebels and rejects and denies God's claim of authority on their lives. And so for someone, a human being, a sinner such as you and I, to embrace God's authority, to embrace Christ's lordship, to delight in the leading headship of Jesus and to live under it, Well, that's a work of grace. That's fruit of salvation. That happens in the life of one who has God as His Father. Well, Colossians 3, if you remember, is all about bringing our lives under the Lordship of Jesus. Under the authority and the claim of Christ. Which, by the way, is a great place to be. Our flesh rejects that uh, our enemy tempts us to not believe that. We're prone in worldliness to think that autonomy, self-autonomy, self-rule is the best way to live. But in reality, the best way to live is under the leading of Christ and in obedience to Him. Why? Because our Savior's good, isn't He? And He's loving. He's gracious and He's kind. He's a good shepherd in John 10. Caring. Compassionate. He's a providing shepherd. And we can trust in Him. And so living under His Lordship, bringing our lives into submission to Him is the best course of action for you and I. And Colossians 3 is all about that. Remember Colossians 3 verse 1? Paul's now shifting in this part of the letter and addressing <clears throat> the conduct and the lives of believers. And specifically those who have been raised with Christ, which is a... A way as we've noted over and over and over again, uh, a way of referring to being born again, to being made new, to being saved. We are now, as Christians, people who have died, chapter 2 verse 20, to our old selves, and we are now raised with Christ as new people. Second Corinthians 5:17, Therefore anyone who's in Christ is what? A new creation, which is why only a new creation can love, obeying Christ because it requires being made entirely new. So that's who Paul's addressing here. And he says, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, if you've been raised, bring your minds under the Lordship of Christ. Then he moves on in the text. Bring your conduct under the Lordship of Christ. Verse 5, put to death what is... Earthly in you. Verse 12, put on godly things. And then he moves on, not just our minds, not just our conducts or our hearts, but even our relationships. Let your relationships with other Christians be governed by Christ. One of the most important relationships you and I have is that with other brothers and sisters in the church. Paul says that should be dictated and and informed and guided and directed all by the will and desire and standard of Jesus. And then he moves on into verse 18 and he goes into the most intimate of relationships for humanity into the home. Verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, we call the household codes for believers. And he addresses the very foundation. Your relationship between husband and wife is now governed by Christ. He moves on to children in verse 20. Children and parents, your relationships are now governed by Christ. And then finally today in verses 22 through chapter four, verse one, we pick up another and a final group that he addresses in the home, slaves and masters. Your relationship is also to be governed by Christ. Let's read the text in verse 22 And then I want to come back and say a few things. Verse 22, bond servants or slaves. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. I want to begin this morning addressing the subject of slavery, because God's people need to know how to address the subject of slavery, because it's a very sensitive subject, and the Bible actually addresses it. And for most people, when they come to a text like this, that's the first thing that they want to consider, what? What is going on with the Bible speaking about the issue and the institution of slavery? And remarkably, there's a lot of um, lack of uh, understanding regarding that subject from a scriptural point of view. So, by way of a very long introduction, I want to talk about slavery before I talk about the text. I think it will provide good background. I want to answer three questions if I can. What does the Bible say about the subject? Why isn't the Bible direct about the subject? And then why is this included here in Colossians chapter 3 as part of the home? So first, what does the Bible have to say about the subject? Well, first, we have to do some very hard work and attempt to get American slavery out of our minds just for a moment. Flip over to Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21. Where God's Good, perfect, original laws for society are written. He addresses the issue of slavery in Exodus chapter 21. Now, I say we need to get the matter of American slavery out of our minds just for a moment. Not because the Bible doesn't address the issue of American slavery. It certainly does. But because the kind of slavery the Bible references is different from American slavery. And when I say American slavery, I mean slavery in the West. Uh, England, Europe, those sorts of places where human beings were stolen, sold, and owned. The Bible addresses that as we'll see in Exodus 21. But when it talks about slavery, it's not talking about that kind of slavery per se. It's talking about a different kind of slavery. Now, no doubt, all forms of slavery have many things in common, including brutality. Because men and women are sinful. Sinful. And wickedness prevails in that sort of an institution. and, And injustice does too. But the Bible is very clear on what it says concerning American type of slavery. Look in verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. Sometimes when we read New Testament passages like Colossians chapter 3, or it's found again in Titus chapter 2, it's found almost identical in Ephesians chapter 6, or even the small New Testament letter of Philemon, people often want to claim that Paul is being racist and condoning and endorsing slavery. But he's not. Certainly not in the sense that we've grown up to think of. The Bible is abundantly crystal clear. American slavery, as you and I have known it in our country's past, is punishable by death. It's not acceptable. Even the whole teaching of Scripture itself tells us slavery is not acceptable. If you believe even remotely the creation account, that man and woman are created equal in the image of God, that gives no room to believe that one can subjugate by force another person into a forced labor even spiritually speaking as we'll see in a moment galatians chapter 3 verse 28 colossians chapter 3 verse 11 says there is neither slave nor free but christ is all and in all paul's not in colossians 3 condoning slavery as you and i know it from our country's history he's not upholding the status quo he's not endorsing it he already knows Scripture is abundantly clear that whoever steals a man and sells him, and even anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So, when the Bible does talk about slavery, what does it mean? we we'll back up into verse 1 of Exodus 21. That's a different kind of slavery. In verse 1, he says, now these are the rules that you shall set before the people of Israel. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. For if he comes if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master my wife and my children, I will not go free. Then his master shall bring him to God. He shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Two things to note about the kind of slavery governed in Exodus twenty-one. It's somewhat voluntary, meaning a person can, in the end, choose to stay or to leave. And it's temporary. After a prescribed time, an individual goes free for no price. Now, even in Exodus 21, even fast forwarding into Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians 6 and, and this sort of time frame, slavery, even in the Roman Empire, wasn't based on race. And it was even still somewhat voluntary. People would hire themselves out to pay off a debt, or to avoid poverty, or to provide themselves and their families income. In fact, we see that reference in the parable of the prodigal son, don't we? Where the prodigal son runs off and Hires himself out as a slave of a pig farmer so that he doesn't go poor. And even in the midst of that, he realizes my conditions aren't great, so I'll go back and be a slave of my father and hire myself to my father so that I can have things a little better for me. There's the concept there of a voluntary servanthood. So when the Bible talks about slavery, it's not talking and endorsing and condoning a forced stealing of an individual. To force them to certain kinds of labor. It governs something in which a person might even. And I say this very sensitively and cautiously. Might even. Gather some good economically. So when we talk about slavery as you and I have known it. In our country's past. We have to rightly say along with the rest of scripture. That it is Wrong and ungodly. And when the Bible comes to speak of slavery and we find it written in its pages, it's something. Different than what we've come to know. It's something. Somewhat temporary. Now, why doesn't the Bible speak directly to the institution of slavery and call for its abolishment? How come Paul never writes to the masters and says, free your slaves? I think two things should be said. First, as I've already mentioned, the whole of Scripture undermines the institution of slavery. The whole Bible, human dignity as described and defined by God, doesn't allow for one person to own another person indefinitely or by force, or by stealing them. Back to Exodus 21. Back to Colossians 3. 11, all people in God's eyes are equal. Secondly. I would say. The New Testament. Paul never writes to masters and says. Release your servants. Or never writes to Christians and says. Overthrow the institution of slavery. Because the New Tef- Testament never. Encourages Christians to overthrow any institution, regardless of how unjust or wicked it is. That's not the purpose of the New Testament. So, to read into Paul as endorsing slavery or condoning slavery is an unfair reading. That's not his intention. Instead, the New Testament is concerned with a believer's faithfulness in the midst of worldly institutions so that they might shine as a light even in the midst of the most darkest of places. For example, is the glaring Roman Empire in which the apostle is living and writing and often imprisoned. One of the most unjust institutions. You want to see a prime example of that. Look at Pilate crucifying Christ. How many times does Pilate say publicly, I find no guilt in him. And yet, what's the result? A crucified, innocent man. The Romans aren't concerned with justice. They're concerned with oppression and obedience and power. And yet Paul never writes and says, overthrow that wicked ruler. Rise up against them. Form an army. Take up arms. Revolutionize. And instead, he says something much more radical than that, doesn't he? He says, submit. Submit. He even says pay taxes. Be a good citizen. Live at peace. And be faithful. That's because the New Testament, again, is not concerned with us enacting revolution. The New Testament is concerned with you and I being faithful where we're at and how we are. In Titus chapter 2, Paul alludes to this, talking about Bondservants, in verse 9 he says, Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. And here's the purpose, verse 10, here's the reasoning. So that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. What's Paul concerned about there? It's not his intent to revolutionize, as I've said, overthrow this institution or that government or this way of worldly living. His concern is the faithfulness of brothers and sisters in Christ so that they might adorn and beautify the gospel, not detract from it. It's an odd thing that the Scriptures seem to care more about your faithfulness than your human rights sometimes. In fact, it seems to let you renounce some human rights so that you might make the Gospel glorious and beautiful. Other places, Paul says, if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity but his primary concern is make the gospel credible. Now, you and I have the privilege of fighting against injustices in our country. It's a right of a citizen and we should engage in such fights from time to time. God used such fighting to abolish the institution of slavery in our country. That's a gracious act of His. But much more, you are to be a shining light and example of Christ changing your heart. That's the point. So Paul doesn't want this bond servant or these bond servants in verse 22 to revolutionize and revolt. He wants them in effect, to win over their masters and their fellow bondservants with their Christ-like conduct. Thirdly, before we get to the text, why is this included in Colossians chapter 3? There seems to be a major disconnect in Paul's theology if we just take things on the surface. We go back to verse 11 of Colossians 3, and he says, Slave and free... And there, there is no slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. He's highlighting equality before God, which is the only kind of equality that matters. And yet, then he comes and he says, oh, by the way, let me address slaves and masters. So why this disconnect in Paul's theology? Or seeming disconnect? Well, there's not a disconnect. The reason Paul is writing this and including this section, is because of a man we meet in chapter 4, verse 9, named Onesimus. Onesimus is traveling with this man that we meet in verse 7, named Tychicus. And they're carrying with them three letters. A letter to the Colossian Christians, a letter to Philemon, and a letter to the Ephesian Christians. All three of these letters are going to circulate and exist and be read in the same region. Close, close, close. Proximity within a few miles of each other. And all three of them deal with the subject of slavery. We have the Colossians 3 passage. We have Ephesians 6, which is almost identical. And then we have the letter to Philemon, which is all about the relationship between a slave and his master. Onesimus is the slave of Philemon. Who's carrying the letter back to his own master and carrying this letter back to the Colossian Christians? Now, Onesimus has apparently wronged his master in some form or fashion, as we read in Philemon. We don't know how he wronged him. Paul doesn't tell us. It's pretty vague. And yet, at some point, Onesimus has become a believer. It's possible he was a believer before he wronged his master and now seeks to repent. But nonetheless, he's a believer now. He's coming back to Philemon, his master, who is also a friend of Paul's and a believer. And Paul writes to him in verse 15 and verse 16 and says, I want you to receive back Onesimus, not as a bondservant, but as a beloved brother in Christ. He says, I want you to See him as dear and precious. He's dear and he's precious to me, Paul says to Philemon. And he should be to you as well. This relationship that you have of slave and master is secondary. He is now your brother. And Paul goes so far to say, however he has wronged you, charge it to my account. In Philemon, Paul has totally begun to redefine the relationship and interaction in this very delicate matter between a slave and his master, Onesimus and Philemon. And quite naturally, Paul knows this subject will likely be brought up in both Ephesus and Colossae. And so let me address it to the readers of that church. And he says this about the interactions between a bondservant and a master. Which, by the way, I hope to remember to highlight later, This passage, in this passage, Paul thinks very highly of those who are bondservants. He's not a racist man and degrading human beings based on their stature or their status or their ethnicity or nationality or anything like that. He's writing to the church assuming there will be believing bondservants in that church who will hear this being read. He calls them servants of Christ. Equal with their masters. Intelligent and capable human beings. And a whole host of other things he alludes to in this passage. So it's wedged in here as the house, part of the household codes because it was quite common for slaves to live in the homes of their masters, but also because there's this issue with Onesimus and Philemon that might be brought up And the church needs to see how Christians should handle themselves in such instances. It's like dealing with a family member. A son or a daughter or a husband or a wife. And he would have the church know that even in dark encounters and dark moments and institutions like this, we can shine the light of Gospel transformation. Now, finally, before we get to the text, real quickly, I have to say how in the world does a passage like this apply to us? We need to know, as God's people, what God thinks about slavery. And obviously, He thinks stealing a man and selling him and owning him is punishable by death. He thinks that you should be faithful in the midst of even such wicked institutions. And he thinks that Christians should know how each other are to treat each other now that they're in Christ. But we're not slaves. And we're not masters. And though racism is still an issue in our country, again, by God's grace, slavery is illegal. So has God's word ceased to be relevant? Or is God's word still relevant? And applicable even for you and I today? Or is it just partially applicable? Maybe this is for brothers and sisters in other parts of the world and we should just know what it says. Well, the language Paul uses in the text is broad and general. And he alludes to the fact that he thinks his principles should be broadly applied. In fact, applied to everyone. And so it's in that frame of thinking that I want to apply it to us today as Christian conduct in relationships of submission and authority, which we are all a part of. We are all submissive to somebody, aren't we? From time to time, it may be at work, maybe at an organization, maybe at the home. We're all, from time to time, in authority over somebody. Maybe again at work, in an organization, at home. How are we To shine the light of the gospel and the transformation of Christ, how are we to be new creations in the context of a submission and authority type relationship? That is how I think we can apply verses 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. So, now that the introduction is over, let's get to the text verse 22 and verse 23, beginning with bond servants specifically mentioned in the text, beginning with those who are in positions of submission for us today, Paul addresses our manner of service. Our manner of service. Just like with children in verse 22, he tells bond servants, obey in everything. It's a comprehensive instruction but just like with wives and husbands and just like with children and parents, it falls under what I call the Acts 4 allegiance, which is, I must obey God rather than men. So far as we are able, when we are in submission to others, we are to obey in everything. As long as the commands don't cause us to disobey God or act sinfully or immorally, We obey in everything, comprehensively. Now notice he says, very purposefully, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Some of your Bible translations may say masters in the flesh. He's doing that on purpose because all throughout this text, he's going to draw this contrast between earthly masters and our ultimate eternal master, Christ. And our earthly masters is a very specific Phrase to remind us of limited authority and temporary existence. Our earthly masters only have so much authority as God gives them, as is true for every kind of authority on earth. And our earthly masters will not be masters over us forever. God will be a master over us forever. So obey in everything your temporary, limited, earthly. Masters, knowing and understanding they are human beings too, and they do not extend to eternity like God. How do we obey? First, not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And if you don't find yourself in that phrase, you don't see yourself well enough. We are all from time to time people pleasers, and we behave in certain ways from time to time, just for eye service. To garnish a good reputation. To appease somebody or to be liked by somebody. We do our duty and we do it to the best of our ability while the boss is watching. And as soon as she leaves, we go on break. We don't do what we should do, or we do it with a very poor performance. Carelessly, casually. Paul writes and he says that That's not the conduct of one born again by Christ. We don't exist in hypocrisy. And we don't exist in pride. And we don't exist to boast our own reputation. And we don't exist for selfish gain. We're not working by way of eye service. We're not working to be a people pleaser. We work instead in sincerity of heart for Christ. That phrase sincerity of heart could also be, and maybe your Bible translates it, sincerity of soul. It means the depths of us, the very core of who we are. It it means our entire being. We work with sincerity of entire being. Our workmanship now has changed. You, You begin to see now how Christ governs even every area of our lives, even... The way we conduct our business. The way we work. The way we volunteer. The way we serve. Nothing is outside the scope of Jesus being Lord over our lives. And Jesus says, My transforming power reaches so far as to tell you how to conduct yourself. So work with sincerity of your entire self. Why? Because you fear the Lord. Because you know the Lord is not an earthly master with limited authority and temporary authority. The Lord is an eternal master with eternal authority. You work for Him. He spells that out explicitly in verse 23. Whatever you do, whatever it is, menial, important, insignificant, even when you don't understand it all, Whatever you do, work heartily, wholehearted, whole self, as for the Lord and not for men. There's some comfort in that. To know that in some way, when we are serving and when we are working, we are serving and working for Christ. Which means, to God, our work is not meaningless. Meaningless or purposeless, or unimportant. Which means that our work, no matter what it is, brings God honor, brings God pleasure, brings God glory. Why? Because all of our work is not just for men, but it's also for the Lord. Moving on, verse 24. That's the manner of our work. We work sincerely for Christ with our whole selves. Verse 24 is the reward for good work. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. The inheritance is an important phrase in the New Testament and all of Scripture really. Peter defines this inheritance in First Peter chapter 1 as Imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven by you, or for you by God. As a whole, the New Testament references it in several ways as the kingdom of God, as salvation, as eternal life with God. And that's exactly the meaning here. Work diligently, even when not watched, because the one who does watch is the one who rewards. And He rewards with a perfect, glorious, eternal inheritance. You and I may have little hope of an earthly inheritance. And we may have little hope of earthly recognition or earthly reward or a, a, a simple earthly thank you. But make no mistake, faithful, good, honest work. God-glorifying work will always be rewarded by the Lord. He sees and He watches and He rewards. And His reward far outweighs anything we could ever hope to gain in this life. Do you, do you want something to help you stop being a people pleaser? Look to the reward that Christ promises and realize that you no longer need to try to gain something here and now from another human being. You need to honor Christ with your efforts. The reward is glorious. And the phrase is now explicitly shared in verse 24. You are serving the Lord Christ. Absolute. At verse 25, there's a warning that I personally believe goes both ways. Back to the slave and forward to the master. There's this ending clause or phrase of verse 25, there is no partiality or favoritism. God's not showing favoritism to the master or the slave. Both are equal, verse 11, in His his sight. And so I think this warning is also a promise and I think it points both ways. The gist of it is this. If you do wrong, you will be paid back for that wrong. The wrongdoer will be paid back For the wrong he has done. For the slave, if the slave steals, if the slave doesn't work, God knows. For the master, if the master is wicked, abusive, unfair, God knows. And He will deal with such things. That's a warning to keep us all on our toes to be people who are working sincerely from the heart as for Christ. But it's also a promise a promise of justice, a promise of righting wrongs. That when you are wronged, and we are from time to time in a fallen world, aren't we? That it is God who will take care of it. You don't need to. God will handle the situation He knows. So, as we are submissive to those in authority over us, we do so, and we are submissive out of sincerity of heart, knowing that we actually are working for Christ, knowing that the reward comes from Him with this warning slash promise that if we do wrong, He sees, and if we are wronged, He sees. That perspective, that practice, is, of the, is for the new new creation, the new person, the new heart, who is ultimately trusting God with their lives. I trust God has me where I'm at. I trust God has me doing what I'm doing. I trust my work means something to God. I trust God can use my work. I trust God sees my work. For the Master, verse 1 Those in authority are told to treat their bondservants justly and fairly. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul's more forceful, and he says, stop your threatening. Stop being abusive and unfair and unjust. It is unbecoming a person of Christ. In other words, if you have authority over another person, you are to, as this verse says, treat them as Christ treats you. Treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a Master in heaven. This verse is a warning and a standard. Your Master is in heaven. And while some may submit to you, you submit to Him. And He is your standard. Treat them as He treats you it's a verse that also reminds masters of human equality notice the word or phrase you also the same master of a bond servant is the same master of the master one god who is god of all and those in authority are to do well to remember that in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Masters, do the same to them. The same instruction that I give to slaves is to be the same instruction to masters. Do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that He who is both their Master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with Him. It's even more explicit in Ephesians 6. There is no room... There is no room for wicked treatment of those in submission to you. In fact, Christ defines leadership, which we might say is true for a master at least to some degree, is not like Gentile leadership, those leaders who lord themselves over other people, but it's leadership based on servanthood and love and care. Masters, the same could be said for you You are not to lord yourself over others, but to care for them as Christ has cared for you. You have the same master. In other words, remember, masters, these are your brothers and your sisters. Or people who need to be your brothers and your sisters. So how does a master reflect the gospel changing their lives? How do they bring their masterly conduct into submission to the Lord Jesus? It's by acting like the Lord to those who are under you. That's a radical instruction. In a world that wants to just gain power, in a world that wants to exert its dominance, in a world that's hungry for every type of authority, In a world that doesn't care about justice or fairness, Paul says you can be a light shining in the darkness by being a master after the master you have in heaven. I don't know how you find yourself in this text necessarily. Or how you might see yourself applying this passage to your life. You should be doing your own work of application realizing in what areas and what ways you're submissive to somebody and how you can exemplify these principles of a Christian who's submissive. Maybe you see yourself as a master in some regards and how now you might consider yourself to act like a Christian master. The point is ultimately this. Wherever you are, however you are and whatever you are doing, you are to do it and exist and behave and live in such a way that shines the light of the Gospel and adorns it with credibility, not discrediting it. Whatever your stance in life, wherever God has you, be faithful in it. Now the truth is, and we've said this all throughout Colossians 3, this New way of living is not possible on your own, is it? And behavior change is never merely the point. Paul tells us to be sincere from the heart. To exemplify Christ. These are things only possible if Christ has caused you to be born again by His grace. If the Spirit of God is working sanctification and godliness in your heart. you can be born again. And you can shine the light of the gospel even in the darkest of places so that people might see the glory of a saving God. And if you are born again and you struggle with this, our good God who exhorts us to pour our hearts out before Him in Psalm 62 will certainly hear your cry for help. So that wherever you're at in life and whatever you're doing, even if you're unsure of what it is, if you ask Him to help you be a light of the Gospel, He will do so. I want to ask you to take a moment, please, and pray. I think it's good for us to reflect on God's Word in silence just for a a moment. And ask God how how this text might apply to you how you might exemplify Christian character and Christian conduct, how you might shine the light of the Gospel wherever you're at in a relationship of submission or a relationship of authority, how might you declare the goodness, saving, transformative power of Christ? Would you pray those things? And here in a moment I'll pray and we'll sing a final song. Father, I love Your Word. I love what it says. I love studying it, sharing it, and I love Your people. I love those who hear it, who seek to obey it. I pray You'll bring the two together. And that You would by Your grace apply Your Word to our lives. We need help. Whether we are submitting to someone or in authority over someone, help us to shine the light of the Gospel. To adorn it with beauty, credibility, and faithfulness. Let us not be a people who just work by way of eye service as people pleasers, but actually desire the good of others because we know it honors You. I pray that when we work in this world, people would see there's something different about us in the way that we work, and the way we conduct ourselves, and even the joy that we have within us. Or maybe, God, we're leading somewhere, and I pray That they would see we lead differently and we care differently and we instruct differently. Help us in whatever way we may to display that we are new creatures in Christ because you have graciously saved us. I pray, Lord, that you would do a miracle this morning and use this text to save unbelievers. In some way, let the gospel pierce their heart. Maybe they realize that they are a poor leader, that they don't lead like You. Or maybe they're a poor servant. They don't serve like You. Help them to see and to believe. And enable us, Your children, to disperse into this world as gospel ambassadors.